You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Well, yesterday, the Supreme Court blocked President Biden's COVID vaccine or test requirement for businesses. Now what? Frances Steed Sellers is a senior writer at The Washington Post, and she is here to walk us through it. Frances, welcome to First Look. Thank you very much for having me, Jonathan. Okay, so how big of a setback is this for, for President Biden's strategy at this point in the pandemic? This is, this is a huge setback for a strategy that has been based on vaccinating as many people as possible. This could affect, affect as many as 80 million people in large businesses across the country. Um, one of the other issues that we have to think about is going ahead. Um, you know, viruses don't know borders. Bugs don't know borders. And um, one of the hopes, I think, had been that a federal policy would affect companies across the country. Of course, many businesses operate in many different states as well. So we have this strange situation where the virus doesn't care whether it's operating in New York or New Jersey, um, but we don't have um, common rulings across different states, which is going to be very complicating for some companies. I'm sure others will feel relieved um, that they don't have to operate and persuade unwilling employees to have a vaccine they don't want to take. I like that. You said bugs don't know borders. Um, so it makes me wonder, in terms of getting businesses to, some businesses to stem the spread of COVID, is the administration looking at other methods? For instance, requiring proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test for domestic air travel to get on a plane? We, absolutely. So air travel is one of the things that the administration can have an impact on, travel between states. And then it's going to be up to a lot of individual states and then individual businesses. As we know, the Washington Post requires us as a, as, uh, to be vaccinated to work or to show other reasons why we should not be. So individual businesses can act on this. Some will but it can't come from the federal government in the way that the Biden administration had hoped. Now, there are other approaches that the administration is looking at right now um, and trying to move ahead with, including masks and testing and distributing tests. But again, we're running into huge logistical issues with the, uh, with the business of getting to enough tests into enough hands across the country. Okay, so tests, and masks, that anticipates two areas where I was gonna go. Let's start with tests. The president announced yesterday the purchase of an additional 500 million at-home rapid tests, which brings the total up to 1 billion to be distributed to Americans for free. But Francis, how soon will these tests reach Americans? Big question. I mean, my mail hasn't been coming. Some of them are meant to be mailed out. And so, you know, we have postal workers who have COVID and are not distributing the mail. One question. Another is we're meant to be able to get reimbursed tests by going to the pharmacy. Uh, we don't yet know the details of that. I think, and that's meant to be for eight monthly tests for family members. So all these are really tricky is issues. People are forgiven for being confused about how they will get their tests. There are also something like 20,000 free testing sites across the country. Um, the potential is there. I, you know, let me give you an example. I went to England in November where there are lots and lots of free tests. It isn't clear how uh, well they prevent infection. People have to have enough tests and to use those tests. We also know that Omicron is a little bit stickier when it comes to rel test reliability than previous variants. So there's lots we don't know. But I do want to give you one example. I arrived in England. I was hoping to get together with some other people. We tested all of us before getting together all negative, but one person didn't feel well, tested against that the next morning, 
we didn't have that event because that person tested positive. We clearly prevented a, uh, a spreading event because that person infected other people within her family that week. So she was, she was vaccinated, but clearly contagious. Um, tests certainly can have a benefit. You have to use them. Mm -hmm. Now on masks, yesterday the president um, tweeted that his administration would announce next week how it's making high quality masks available for free. Health experts have been urging this kind of action for weeks. So what took the administration so long to do this and when will it be implemented? Again, this is a really interesting issue. Clearly, you know, the CDC has said any mask is better than no mask. There's been hesitation about um, using uh, high quality masks for the general public because they've been needed for healthcare workers. They're also expensive. So we get out these free masks again. Masks only work if you use them. It's a little bit like the testing strategy. I think we can envision a possibility in the future of fully vaccinated, compliant people wearing masks using tests, whereas we have this large 40% of the population almost that is not vaccinated and many are unwilling to mask and I suspect will be unwilling to test too. Francis, can we talk about, uh, about the CDC? So on the one hand, Folks are wondering why hasn't the CDC updated um, or issued new guidance on upgrading masks? And then on the other hand, there's the issue of messaging and how the messaging out of the CDC is either not effective or just simply confusing people. I think this is a really huge issue. Um, you know, the CDC was very much undermined um, and not playing a central role in promoting the science um, in the previous administration. Biden a year ago said it's science first. Will and, and last week we saw Rochelle Walensky, in fact, last Friday, coming out holding her own, uh, the first solo uh, press conference she had held. Um, and it was very much welcomed. I can tell you, I, I was listening to it. There were reporters on those calls. They really wanted to be able to ask questions of her about the science. But you know, when it comes to very difficult issues like Omicron, which is spreading so rapidly and also seems to be less severe, at least for adults, um, you, you get into, into areas where it's not just about the science. Public health is never just about the science. <laughs> and so you need a kind of level of clarity of message that can be quite tricky um, and, and, and you have to ask whether the CDC should be the only people doing this. So there's the science message, but that has to be taken along with uh, many, many other considerations. So hospitalization rates are rising across the country. Uh, staff shortages are rising um, at medical facilities. How long, Francis, do you think before those rates peak in the way Omicron cases appear to be doing right now in cities like Washington and New York. So we have this little sense of some relief in New York, uh, Boston, Washington, where in, in Boston, wastewater has shown a, a, um, less levels of infectivity. New York may have re reached its peak. There's an awfully big country out there, and we're seeing 150, hmm. almost 150,000 hospitalizations at the moment. That is putting enormous strain on hospitals. When you call uh, doctors as I do during the week, uh, they are wondering how they're going to cope, particularly as this is spreading so widely. So if you go back two days to the, so, sorry, two years, to the early days of the pandemic when New York was so badly hit, people were able to move from other parts of the country. They were fresh. It was very frightening. We didn't know this disease. We couldn't, as well as we do now, we didn't have the same treatments. Um, but there was a sort of sense of freshness and willingness to battle. I think going into the third year of this pandemic, um, you're seeing the wear and tear in hospitals 
just about 25 states are at capacity, they say now. A third of the beds in many ICU units are um, Omicron patients. Even people who come in, and I think this is a very key point, even people who come in having, say, I don't know, broken their ankle or some, have some other problem and then test, test positive have to be kept separate. That's a huge burden on systems and people mm -hmm. are afraid and tired. So we heard the administration, you know, is going to send out the cavalry, a thousand more people, I think, going out to six um, service members, going out to six states to help, including New York and New Jersey. But plugging those people in, making them work within a system is all a huge challenge. This isn't just mm -hmm. a moment when uh, relief comes easily. Right. We, we have less than a minute left, but I have to ask you this before we go. You know, when it comes to Omicron, there are folks out there who are saying, you know, everyone should just get the virus um, to bring about herd immunity. What are doctors and public health experts saying about that? Sane or insane? I think, <laughs> well, some sense of inevitability that many, many, many of us are going to get it right away. But wait, there are so many things we don't know about Omicron. We certainly don't want to flood the hospitals right now. Long COVID, we still don't understand. And there's some emerging research we don't know yet. You know, viruses are strange things. You can get chickenpox and shingles later on. We don't know and understand the full sequelae, as they're called in the medical world, um, of Omicron. Uh, we do know that long COVID is troubling many, many people. There are theories that could be a viral reservoir in much the way that some other viruses have shown, as I mentioned. And then small children. Um, Omicron appears to act more on the upper respiratory tract rather than going down into lungs. Good news for adults, not necessarily for small children who have, have small windpipes, small uh, tubes, um, and could be more vulnerable. So wait, let's learn more before we go out and deliberately get Omicron. Plus, immunity doesn't last that long. That was a, a long answer to a very important yeah. question. But I think I'll don't yeah. go and get I'll it on purpose. <laughs> No, no, no. I'll take the long answer, um, especially on, on that question. Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at The Washington Post, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you, Jonathan, very much. And you, good weekend. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find my Washington Post columnist colleagues, Donna Edwards and George Will. Welcome back to First Look. Glad to be with you. Great to be with you. Okay, now talk about a pivot. We're now, we got to talk about what's been occupying the conversation in Washington, or let's say one of the conversations occupying Washington, and that's on voting rights. Um, this question is for both of you, but I'm going to come to you first on this, Donna. Senators uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and President Biden, what the heck? <laughs> I mean, they've been against doing anything on the filibuster to help get voting rights uh, bills passed. Cinema said uh, again in a speech on the Senate floor, as the president's motorcade was warmed up about to bring him to the Capitol to meet with Senate Democrats uh, for their, their weekly lunch. Then the two senators went to, uh, then the senators went to the White House last night, both of them, Manchin and Cinema, to talk to the president uh, about voting rights. Donna. Nothing is going to happen on the Freedom to Vote Act or the John Lewis, rights, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. So why are those two senators wasting the president's time? Well, I, I mean, I have to tell you, it's a good thing I'm not president because I probably would not have let them cross the threshold. Um, I do think that what happened yesterday on the Senate floor was 
um, was rather stunning, I think, for a senator to take to the floor knowing that the president was on his way uh, over to address the Democratic caucus without actually hearing from the president, but to rebuke him um, and his efforts at uh, filibuster reform, not even hearing his arguments on the floor of the Senate was rather stunning, I think, and I think stunning to a lot of uh, Democrats. It was, in my view, pretty disrespectful. I mean, not to share a private conversation and then to go to the Senate floor. That said, I also think that coming out of the White House uh, last night, their statements and re resolves of Senators Manchin and Sinema, um have deepened. Um, but I think it also, if you listen to Senator Sinema on the floor yesterday, her arguments for um, not engaging in filibuster reform are very specious. I mean, her reconstruction of the history of the filibuster really is not an accurate one. It hasn't led to comedy. It hasn't led to um, bipartisanship. Um, it's been destroyed at will. Even a month ago, uh, the, the filibuster rules were abandoned in favor of moving forward uh, the debt limit. And so I just don't find it a very credible argument. And she made that on the floor again yesterday. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it means that it's the death knell for voting rights. And uh, to the disadvantage on a partisan level, to the disadvantage of Democrats on a moral level, uh, to the disadvantage of Americans who are seeing an increased number of voter suppression, suppression techniques and legislation across the, the country. And it's only going to get worse. You know, George, I, I, for me, the problem with what Senator Sinema said on the floor yesterday, it goes right to what uh, Donna Edwards was just talking about. She voted for, Senator Sinema voted for a filibuster carve out to raise the debt limit, which needed to be done. So I would love your, your thoughts, uh, George, on this, because you've been covering Washington for decades. Have you ever seen a situation where a senator takes to the floor and speaks out against something the president of her party wants to get done as the president is about to get into his motorcade to come to the Capitol and have lunch with her and her Senate colleagues. It is rare that this happens, and I think too rare. Uh, what you're seeing <laughs> is, is a senator acting like a senator. We've now, we, we've so far gone beyond the Madisonian assumption about separation of powers, which was that senators would not be team players. They would not look upon themselves as doing the blocking and tackling for a presidential quarterback. Uh, of course, when Madison put this all together, the founders didn't anticipate or desire political parties. Now we have political parties and the senators are supposed to be, as I say, team players. Well, Senator and Manchin are not team players, and I think that's good. That's what a senator is supposed to look like. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> George, I'm going to I'm going to stick with you uh, uh, for this next question, and it's about voting rights. I'm just wondering what happened to the Republican Party on voting rights, as President Biden pointed out in his speech in Atlanta. Um, this was a bipartisan issue, uh, and not only that, but when the voting rights uh, bill was reauthorized in 2006. It passed unanimously uh, out of the Senate. President George W. Bush, Republican, 
also held a bill signing ceremony on the South Lawn of the White House. And to put an even finer point on it, George, yesterday, Reverend Al Sharpton uh, told me that President George W. Bush, Republican, when he signed that at that event on the South Lawn, invited him to the bill signing. And he went. He was there. What happened to the GOP on this issue? Well, I don't think it's simply fair and accurate to say that what's going on in Georgia, and Georgia is the laboratory for this, I gather, is rampant voter suppression that indicates that the Republicans are violating the spirit of Lincoln, et cetera, et cetera. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, photo ID. Photo ID came to Georgia in 2008, and what happened? Voter participation has increased dramatically in Georgia. Georgia has 17 days of early voting, including two Saturdays, by the way. Chuck Schumer's New York has nine days. Uh, Georgia has no excuses. You don't need any excuse at all for absentee ballots. Schumer's New York put that idea to a referendum, and the referendum was soundly defeated in New York. Now, is that Jim Crow 2.0? rearing its ugly head in, in New York? I don't think so. The rhetoric uh, at this point is so unhinged. The president's speech in, in Atlanta was a Trumpian coarseness, vulgarity. And I mean, vote with me or you're a, a traitor like Jefferson Davis, a, a semi-fascist like Bull Connor, a racist like George Wallace. Please now. Uh, the, it, it just reeks of desperation on the part of a president who is having an epically bad week. Okay, Donna, I'm gonna to come to you on this, but I have to say this. My, my issue, George, with the Republican Party right now when it comes to voting rights is, well, one, 16 of the senators who voted unanimous, unanimously in 2006 to reauthorize are still serving in the Senate. And they, those senators won't even allow for a debate. This isn't asking them to vote for the bills. It's asking to allow for a debate on the two bills. Why can't the country see this debate? But Donna, I'm coming to you because I would love to get your reaction since George brought up the president's BAFO speech in Atlanta. And I thought that the line that George is talking about that he found to be coarse and Trumpian, I thought was the definitive line in his speech. And, and actually, an accurate line, given where we are in terms of American democracy. I would love your view uh, on that line in the president's speech. Well, I, I guess I didn't find the offense with the president's speech that others did. I mean, I, I do think that um, if you look at the For the People Act, that what you have in there are some common sense measures um, to encourage people to vote, uh, making the election day a holiday. Uh, so that people can have the luxury of taking their time to vote on election day. Um, clarifying um, the, the need for mail-in voting, standardizing that, um, protecting the right to vote. These are common sense measures. Even getting rid of things like in the Georgia law, what's the rationale um, not to allow a bottle of water to be offered in the middle of the heat? Uh, for voters who are standing in line. It's not a bribe, it's a bottle of water. And so I, I do think that, um, you know, people, Republicans have not given um, serious consideration to this legislation, but here we're talking about, you know, I would say if no Republicans are gonna vote for it, allow the debate to go forward and then let a majority of 
um, senators vote for or against it. Uh, and so I just I don't understand not going to a debate on these these issues. Let the American public hear the pros and the cons. I mean, already Americans believe that we should have these common sense reforms. We've had 19 um, laws passed in 33 states that would restrict various um, forms of ways in which people vote. And I think we're getting to a point where every state for federal elections is going to have a myriad of different uh, different rules. And this legislation is about standardizing that uh, for federal elections. So, you know, let's bring on the debate and then let the American people see for themselves uh, what side of this they fall on. George, I'm going to pivot to um, January 6th. And in particular, I would love your thoughts on the charge of seditious conspiracy against the Oath Keepers. The details in the indictment are beyond chilling. How concerned, how could, uh, your thoughts? Well, they are chilling, and the Oath Keepers uh, deserve to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Whether we want to elevate this fringe group of semi-lunatics to a seditious conspiracy that threatens the republic, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about that. But um, I think it was it is accurate to describe them that way in terms of common parlance. Whether or not the legal category fits, I, I'm not qualified to say. But uh, it, it's very important for this committee to get, get, do its work, to provide information that's a legitimate function of the investigative uh, aspect of Congress. And I think the more people learn about this, the more uh, the educational function is going to sink in. And they're going to realize that there were some true lunatics uh, about whom the best thing we can say is that they were small in number uh, and as impotent as they were deranged. Um, so the, the, the indictments on seditious uh, conspiracy came from the Department of, the Department of Justice. Which, whose investigation is separate from the January 6th Select Committee. But that is a nice segue to you, Donna, because the, the January 6th Select Committee has asked House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to come in and talk to the committee. He has said no. And so Donna, as a former member of Congress from the, the great state of Maryland, since he's not going to cooperate, do you think the select committee should subpoena him, which would be an unprecedented move? It would, but it would not be for any witness who decides that they want to, uh, they don't want to testify before Congress. I think it would be appropriate uh, to subpoena uh, Kevin McCarthy and any other members. Um, I think that they would, they don't have, they don't have a lot of legal grounds to, uh, to stand on. Um, but it's important, again, for the select committee to be able to, you know, do their work and to make sure that uh, they get to the truth of what happened on, on January 6th. And I think that there is an interesting sort of parallel move that's happening at the Department of Justice, which is moving slower than some people want, but very deliberately um, in trying to uh, get to those, those same truths. But yes, Kevin McCarthy... Um, is just should just be treated like any other citizen. You don't want to appear before the uh, the committee. The committee ought to subpoena you and bring you uh, bring you forward, and um, and let the truth come out and let him take the oath, saying that he's going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Mm -hmm. We've got less than four minutes, and I've got about six more questions, so I'm going to try to squeeze them in. George, inflation, 
big news today surged to seven percent between um, uh, surged seven percent between December 2020 and December 2021. What does the Biden administration need to do to beat back inflation? Is there anything the administration can do? Stop doing what it's doing. That is to say, <laughs> inflation. Most of us believe, at least of, of my political persuasion, that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Uh, too much money chasing too few goods. Quit increasing government spending in trillion dollar tranches that are enabled by the creation through the Federal Reserve of money. Uh, that's the first thing. I mean, what we're witnessing today was not only predictable, it was predicted by Larry Summers, among others. Larry Summers, a <clears throat> liberal Democrat in good standing, said you're, you're risking inflation and here it is. And the second thing they should do, Jonathan, is stop the cartoonish explanation of these things. Elizabeth Warren says inflation in food is caused by price gouging by concentration in the retail grocery industry, where, by the way, Elizabeth, the profit margin is 1% on, on sales in the retail grocery industry. I mean, this, this is a unworthy of, of uh, a senator or anyone else who wants to talk seriously about how an economy works. <laughs> Donna, the inflation news hit as, as a new Quinnipiac poll puts President Biden's approval rating at 33%. This is the lowest uh, standing in any of the major, major polls. Is this happening because of inflation or COVID or both or another factor? Well, I think it's a number of factors. Look, it's COVID, it's inflation, it is you know, people's concern with um, putting food on the table and being able to afford that and to afford the, you know, the, their heating bills and um, all of the things that American families care about. And so I think the first step is to acknowledge that families are hurting um, in, this, in this environment. I think that um, the Fed has already signaled some moves that it's, it's going to raise um, interest rates, which have been basically flatlined at zero for um, a couple of years now. Uh, and I think that that will help to uh, curb inflation. I think getting people you know, back to work and the economy fully humming, uh, which has been uh, sort of stalled out because of, of COVID will help as well. Um, but there are a number of factors contributing right now in this environment where every day the, um, the president of the United States since it, uh, seems to face a little bit of uh, uh, bad news and that is weighing on his on his job approval. The other thing mm -hmm. that's weighing is the inability to kind of get, you know, the this these uh, legislative moves across the tape, uh, across the finish line. Um, the Build Back Better Act, um, you know, hopefully it hasn't uh, died its uh, final uh, death or uh, faced its final breath. Um, but these are things that actually could help to, you know, move the president's approval numbers up and. COVID, COVID, and more COVID. Mm -hmm. um, George, we, <laughs> I don't even have time uh, to, to ask you this question that I have on, on Russia and Ukraine, especially on this day when the big news out of Ukraine is that um, several government agencies reported that they'd been hacked, including the foreign ministry, which said on its website, a message was left that said, be afraid and expect the worst. You wrote a column about this, about, um, uh, about the United States and Vladimir Putin and sanctions.
I, I urge people to go to go to washingtonpost.com slash opinions to read it. We don't have time to talk about it, but George, you'll be back and Russia will still be on the docket. Donna Edwards, George Will, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. Glad to be thank with you. you Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to Washington Post Live.